I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. Even the vegetables don't love we love to watch. There goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grim. If they gave a prize for being mean, a winner would be him. Old Scrooge, he loves his money because he thinks it gives him power. Pete, hey Ethan. Hi. Kind of threw me for a loop by not starting with "We love to watch," Peter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so is that is... Uh... what are we even doing? <laughs> it's good what to be here for show such a... am I on? I'm here for like an innovation, and that's very exciting. Yeah. For a second, I was worried I was on like an Ernest theme podcast on opposite. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> not an Ernest theme podcast. So it's it's we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month. Around that theme. And this month, it's no, uh, Muppets Take November, which uh, our guest today helped coined on our first episode this month. Uh, and we're wrapping it up kind of a, a, a kind of a bridge to Christmas and December and our very Christmas themed December, which we'll talk about at the end of this episode uh, with A Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, uh, definitely a movie that I feel like is in competition just in the general populace's view with the Muppet movie for favorite internet Muppet movie. And our guest today was on our first episode. We we gave him that uh, Sophie's choice to decide, do you want to be on the Muppet movie episode or Muppet Christmas Carol episode? And after a lot of, candidly, quite a lot of him going back and forth to me on a Facebook chat... And crying the whole time. I mean, I didn't know about the crying, but it was, was quite a long time things. of going back and forth and back and forth and, like, walking me through your thought process. And I was at work. I had things to do. So I'm like, Ethan, just come on both. I'm sorry I asked. Um, and But uh, so we are pleased to have Ethan Warren back to finish out this month. One of our favorite guests. Uh, the only person that has guested on two episodes of We Love to Watch with 50% of the hosts gone. <laughs> um, Ethan, if people don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, if people don't know me, what is their problem? But I will I will deign to reintroduce myself. Um, <laughs> uh, I am the senior editor at uh, one of the senior editors at Brightwell Darkroom, uh, which is an online film journal devoted to uh, long-form film criticism, uh, analysis of, of movies and TV, um, entirely independent, totally subscriber-supported, which allows us to really do whatever we want. Uh, like, for example, just hypothetically, <laughs> if you were uh, invited on to do an, an episode of a show about um, Muppet Christmas Carol and you discovered that you had so many feelings and thoughts about it that you couldn't possibly be constrained to uh, even the longest of podcast episodes, you can turn to your editor and say, hey, could I write a whole essay on why <laughs> Buffett Christmas Carol is the greatest adaptation of A Christmas Carol? And you will be allowed to do that uh, at, at the great length <laughs> that your heart desires. So uh, I... I can't say for sure, because uh, I haven't listened to every single episode, but I imagine this will be the first episode of, of We Love to Watch that will have a supplemental uh, essay online. Uh, it, no, actually not. Um, we uh, Andrew Bloom, who's been a two-time guest on this Andrew! Uh, yeah, who, who writes for Consequence of Sound, has written uh, essays. Uh, and kind of Douglas Lehman with Society. 
All right. Layman. Well, so sorry, I said Lamont. Previous <laughs> episode. Either, either way, we're flattered. Uh, I like Aaron implying that it's not a big deal um, because it's been done at least twice before. I didn't say it wasn't a big deal. He just asked for a fact check, and I, Peter, I. I need to be honest with the guests. If you can't establish trust, you can't have a podcast. I mean, the egg on my face is is truly just outrageous. So I, I am so <laughs> pleased to join the ranks of Andrew and Doug, two, uh, two writers and thinkers I admire a great deal, in creating supplemental essays to uh, go to add to the we love to watch experience. But I will say this, in, in Ethan's, I don't know if defense is the right word, but... Uh, my guess is that his will be the most expansive, where other people wrote about the movie. Uh, Ethan has been nice enough to send us his letterbox logs to confirm through the, the, the lie detector test that is letterbox that all he's been watching is Christmas Carol themed movies. Uh, and so I think it makes sense to kind of talk a little bit about, I, I, I don't know if this is true, it feels like it might be one of the most at, uh, adapted stories of all time outside of Shakespeare. It is. It is certainly one of them, and and I think it it might hold the title. I've been doing you know some some real nerdy deep diving. Um, I mean it's it it has an adaptation in 1901, so it is certainly one of the earliest uh, books ever adapted to the screen. Yeah, and uh, on top of that, so tons of movie versions, some that I didn't even know of, uh, Ethan, when you were sharing kind of the list of ones you had watched. I think it's one of the few movie or uh, stories that people could, like, name their top three adaptations of the story and have a lot to choose from. And not only from a movie standpoint, but there is so many television specials and television episodes that kind of adapt this story as well. And that's not even getting into everything that kind of parodies it. Uh, I'll turn it over to to you, uh, Ethan and Peter. But I think that's because, and I was saying this in the chat, it like it kind of is a perfect story from a both a story structure standpoint. It kind of has like its its three acts built into what happens in the actual story with a prologue and an epilogue. And then it also has a extremely it's extremely satisfying story because. You basically get someone who goes from unrepentant villain at the beginning to uh, not just not just achieving a level of like inner peace and joy and recognizing humanity and love and stuff like that, but also then just does a series of good things designed to make the reader or the audience super fucking happy. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you break this story out in in sort of like a, a beat sheet as as you would in uh, you know if you're writing a screenplay, it is so sort of perfectly like every act has like two or three little encounters and like if you hit each of you know a handful of beats maybe like eight or ten like you got a christmas carol you can do it in you know 120 seconds or you can do it in 120 minutes um but if you just sort of stick to that that really great spine that that charles dickens established something that's been interesting as a um, Aaron alluded to, I, I have now watched 14 adaptations of A Christmas Carol in, I think, the last five days. It is a story that has a ton of room to kind of riff within that that framework. Where I, th- I think an adaptation can go wrong is when they try to add things to it. So the 1951 adaptation with Alistair Sim is kind of considered canonically like the great Christmas Carol movie, but they, they add a bunch of plot to it. And they, they show you, um, you know, 
Scrooge and Marley meeting each other and becoming business partners and like doing a hostile takeover of, of whatever company. And it's like, it's, it's sort of that like George Lucas episode one thing of like, well, you, you are always wondering how C-3PO got put together, right? <laughs> it's like, not really. <laughs> But yeah, then, yeah, like all we need to know, we 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 know enough about asshole capitalists that like th- this kind of image of like, well, we need to know the specific details. Like, yeah, it'd be great if like Scorsese was going through like the fucking book sheets for us. But other than that, no, I imagine it was just cruelty on cruelty. Am I am I roughly in the am I roughly in the I same mean, category? You know, Dickens wrote a story that is you know very economical and and kind of concise. And then so the then the contrast to that is. The uh, Albert Finney version, Scrooge, from, I think it's 1970, which, compared to a lot of other adaptations, plays really, really fast and loose with... Um, yeah, he goes to... It's been a while since I've seen it, but doesn't he go to literal hell? Oh, f- God, I forgot about that part, even. <laughs> that's that's actually... I hate that. But <laughs> be- before that, I think it's a, it's a beautiful testament to kind of... There is room to sort of riff within this. A lot of adaptations really stick... Uh, sort of obsessively closely um, to to certain lines. I mean, we all know, you know, the the uh, if if the poor had rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. You know, anybody who has Merry Christmas on their lips should be buried with the fucking pardon my language <laughs> um, stake of holly through their heart. All of that stuff. There's more of gravy than of grave. And if you watch twelve of these in a row, like it it becomes very numbing. In, you know, a pleasant way in some ways, because it's a great story. But then the Albert Finney version really is is not sort of being too faithful to that. Um, and it, it doesn't add plot, but it expands story. And that's what I think is really yeah. interesting about that one. And then, as you did mention, Marley does take Scrooge to literal hell and it turns into Jigoku, or however that name, uh, film is, is pronounced. Oh. That, that <laughs> it's classic okay, pronouncing things are hard. Japanese uh, depiction of hell in a very literal sense. And it just gets so histrionic, it's a little pathetic. But I remember that. liking I remember liking it as a kid. Like as a kid, the best part of this story for me was like, are they gonna show what death or the 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 ghost of uh christmas yet to come what he looks like because it kind of varies by adaptation like this one you just kind of get this cool visage and then some of them you get like horrific monsters under the hood uh most of them have hoods that i've seen and then and then uh in yeah and scrooge they're like what if he actually takes them to hell well gets and him, gets them real close up with how bad it's gonna be as so i love falling it. as he's falling into the grave yeah it does cut to a shot of the ghost of christmas yet to come just has you know, a skeleton, a, a skull face yeah. and skeleton hands. And it's like, oh, cool. Just so like straight, literal Grim Reaper. You really uh, went outside the box on that one. Uh, <laughs> but now now I'm dragging this movie that I, I do think is is one of the top, uh, you know, top of the heat. Top three, probably. I mean, I think it would be probably for me. Um, yeah, Scrooge uh, with Finney and the Alistair Sim version, 1951. Um because Alistair Sim just totally nails it. There's just this sort of gothic atmosphere that is so gorgeous and, you know, some really creepy effects by the standards in 1951. And and then, you know, this is my grand theory. Neither of them even attempts to sort of really get at some of the tougher elements to adapt. And only one of them does. And it's, it's the Muppet Christmas Carol. What, what are the... The toughest parts to adapt from your perception, perspective. 
Well, sure. Um, and, you know, it, some of this will all come up as we talk, but I, I think there's there's three kind of key elements. Um, this is a book that is, is just so sort of deeply important to me. My dad read it to me every year growing up, so I've probably read it about 10 times before this year. Um, yeah. And then uh, just a week or two ago, I listened to a lovely version uh, read by Tim Curry that is available on Audible. Highly recommended. Which is funny. Long John Silver? I was Silver? discussing with you guys about, yes, that Tim Curry yes. is like maybe the uh, the greatest actor to put in a Muppet movie because he's kind of like a Muppet without the felt. Sure. I mean, the greatest actor to put in a Muppet movie obviously is Michael Caine, but we will talk about him great <laughs> but, Mike, but michael kane it works because he has a contrast to the muppets he's like su- yes. super serious a stoic british actor but tim curry is like this like uh goofball rubber face kind of guy anyways but yeah the, yes. tim curry reading that is awesome i think you've all missed the ep- the it's a very muppet christmas where the cast of scrubs shows up so i think i have missed that unfortunately <laughs> if you'd seen that i think you would revise your list i'll get around to, to it. to be clear it's all of them jd turk the angry one uh the blonde one the whole gang uh aaron i believe the blonde one has the same name as your daughter <laughs> <laughs> Uh, literally named after her. Because <laughs> we <laughs> throwing we, a lot of shade. I was. Well, I know it was. Uh, my, uh, my wife and I liked the name Elliot uh, for a girl because of Scrubs. So yes, it was a kind of one of those purposeful Passovers, Peter. It's but yes, I, I'm I'm aware. I'm aware pick. of what her name is. Yeah. So so Ethan, uh, yeah, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I'd love to hear more of your your kind of central theory for why the Muppets is is the top of the pops. So this is this is the the theory that I have been kind of formulating the last few days is that this is a book that you can adapt obviously pretty easily, pretty faithfully to the story, but the but the book has some qualities that are so inherent to kind of prose and particularly the prose of the era that you're losing something if you just adapt the story and what what the henson company and and brian henson did and uh and and the screenwriter i believe jerry jewell is his name uh did that was was very smart was did something that i think is closer to kind of transmutation they they take elements of the story and move them over to to sort of the cinematic form as best you can to retain elements of it. And so I kind of have three core ideas that, you know, I will try and say very quickly and and we'll come back to as we talk. But one of them is, is it's just as simple as, as the Gonzo thing. I mean, you know, he Gonzo is playing Charles Dickens and that is not as simple as just featuring Dickens language which is beautiful and is great. There are moments where, where Gonzo bringing out the Dickens language gives me chills. Um, you know, there's a part where during the opening musical number, he sort of steps away to, to use some of Dickens language about Scrooge being as tight as an oyster or whatever. But the thing about this book is that Charles Dickens is a very active first person narrator. And it starts with Marley was dead as a doornail. And then he goes on like a half page digression of like a bunch of bullshit about why like, but like, you know, is a doornail really the deadest nail? I think probably a coffin nail. But the wisdom of our elders is in the simile. And if I don't stick to it, then the country is ruined. The point is Marley was dead. And then later, like, there's a part where 
uh, it's it's not in I think basically any of the movies, but but Scrooge uh, he visits his the you know his lost love, uh, which is in most of the movies, and then in the book, the ghost of of Christmas Past brings him to see Belle, the love of his life, uh, as an older woman and as a mother. And Charles Dickens takes about a one page digression to be a giant horn dog. <laughs> and he's like, and just by the way, man, if I was in that room with her, I, oh, I would not be able to keep my hands off her. Va va voom. And it's like, Charles Dickens, what are you doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's typically you know, this, when people get turned on by erotica, they're reading erotica, they're not writing it themselves and yes. turning themselves on from their own fantasies, uh, being adapted into one of the maybe the most famous Christmas story of all time. Well, I think there's one apart other, from the Jesus thing. Right? <laughs> that also sounds like the best name for like a Mountain Goats album. <laughs> Charles Dickens, what are you doing? <laughs> let's let's get John Darnell on it. So, I mean, this is and and as you know, as part of the Dickens legend, he would soon be performing this um, in in these sort of live live performances that were like the One Direction concerts of their day. Like he was he was a showman. And so Gonzo, as as sort of a Dickens analog, functions so beautifully in terms of sort of like what Gonzo represents is he is this weird, digressive, goofy, horny showman. And in, in this movie, he also digresses instantly. He says, you know, welcome to A Christmas Carol. I know this story like the back of my hand. And Rizzo says, describe it. And he describes the back of his hand. It's the same effect as this kind of narrative digressions and it maintains this spirit that like this book is very silly at times uh in a way that that doesn't come through and gonzo yeah. lets that come through yeah the dead as a doornail thing is funny because they don't steal the joke that that dickens kicked off with which is talking you know questioning the very the the questioning the metaphor or the simile or whatever uh that he used to kick off the book instead uh they <laughs> uh, rizzo the rat goes like what's that <laughs> like that's how the that's how the story starts <laughs> it's like right. it becomes this yeah it, it's um it's coming up with its own joke to sort of um capture the the atmosphere and the tone of the original piece but in such a way that if you haven't read the original book you would just be like oh that's a muppet thing yeah they marry they marry so well together but yeah so while we're talking about that you watched 14 adaptations you watched all victorian era ones you didn't watch like the boy meets world one like aaron has called out or scrooged or i i didn't rewatch scrooged because you know it's it is the the modernized adaptation the um i did just today watch top and, three though yes oh absolutely <laughs> um and you know is is a fascinating work in its own right but in terms of me scientifically trying to establish my parameters of study i did watch the henry winkler vehicle an american christmas carol from 1979 <laughs> which is like surprisingly kind of good especially in the um the sort of way i'm talking about where like they move it to uh, New Hampshire during the Depression, and okay. it's like not a great movie, but they do some you know kind of interesting stuff with it, including putting Henry Winkler, who was about age thirty five at that time, in the most hideous old age makeup you can possibly imagine. As Ethan has pointed out, um, and we'll get back to we'll get back to your your core argument, Ethan. But like as Ethan has pointed out, the structure of this is very easy to 
to adapt and like sitcoms do it in 20 minutes all the time i'm pretty sure there's a full house one there's definitely a boy meets world one like all the classics there's not a full house one there's not a full house one no there's only three full house christmas specials and i've seen them okay never mind yeah um how do we know that find out at the end of the episode (laughs) but yeah ethan you're right it's very easy to just take the beats and then also like you pointed out rely on spectacle um and that's something i want to jump in really quickly and say like christmas carol is kind of a christmas horror movie this comes from a tradition of of christmas ghost stories that were were popular at the time it was written and we now we've kind of disassociated the two um the idea of horror and Christmas, except for in a subversive way, but the two, the, the idea of a particularly ghosts and Christmas were tied together heavily in the uh, in the 19th century. My other two prongs of this argument are is it's Gonzo as Dickens is number one, and and that's just kind of like that's a TKO right there for me. Like it becomes the best adaptation in that moment, and then we <laughs> will. It's it is you know I think better suited as you say to later on, but. Um, the other one is is the way that puppetry can do uh, the uncanny in a way that, that yeah. the, the book uses some language that is impossible to recreate on screen. Um, and particularly the way that Dickens describes the ghost of Christmas past is fascinating um, and and almost literally, I would say, impossible to recreate on screen. And, and puppetry is able to, again, not recreate that, but do something that has a similar sort of chills up your spine effect. And then number three uh, of my trident of theory is is that these characters are are allegory. I mean, they're they're not characters in the way that we think of them. The sort of the Dickens characters they are much closer to I think like fifteenth century morality plays, like the play Everyman, where a guy is literally meeting like the physical manifestation of greed and the physical manifestation of friendship. And the Muppets, I think, function as a really interesting analog to that, where even more so than than Mickey's Christmas Carol, each of the Muppets is one thing. You know, you see Kermit, and as we talked about for about, what was it, seven hours a couple of months ago while crying the whole time, Kermit is the embodiment (laughs) of decency. Uh, Miss Piggy is sort of vanity, and Fozzie is cheesiness. And... yep. That just that functions as a shorthand for the viewer in a way that that sort of is able to kind of circumvent, I think, the way that we traditionally want to um, see characters as as three dimensional and, and rounded in a way that the book can't really support um, on screen. Like Tiny Tim literally knows that he is more useful as a symbol than a character because he says in the book, I hope that or, you know. Bob Cratchit says that Tiny Tim said, I hope people see me, this little disabled boy, and feel better about themselves because of it. <laughs> and I just think that there was a lot of, there's a lot of criticism, um, something that I've been learning 30 years after A Christmas Carol came out. There was criticism, uh, sort of waves of essays coming out in a way that is is very distinctly similar to what we're now seeing with people reassessing works from the 80s and 90s, where People looked back, the sort of edgelords of the 1870s, and were like, look, if you think about it, A Christmas Carol is really not that great. It's got, like, pretty thin characters. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the whole idea. Yeah, some of them are starving because Scrooge has all the food. (laughs) They're very thin. Please, sir, I want some cheese. Yeah, absolutely. And, And so that is, as I say, something that 
in sort of movies, we typically want our characters to be characters. And the Muppets are these perfect sort of, again, you know, caricatures that I think slotting them in works very nicely. And that is my trident of theory. Gonzo, (laughs) uncanniness, and the Muppets as sort of representational figures. And I am excited to get further into it. Yeah, no, those are those are great call outs. And really, yeah, someone I have not seen as many adaptations as you have. I, my guess is Peter would say the same. Um, but uh, y- there is something like special about this in a way that I've never been able to put my my finger on. I think the Gonzo call out is a really good one. Now, I've I've never read the book. I have read uh, the the book about the Muppet Christmas Carol. And that I've seen, I've read the novelization of this movie that came out when the movie came out, uh, because I didn't get to see it in theaters, and so that was my way of of seeing quote unquote a movie I was really excited about. Such a but, deeply strange concept to me that that they could novelize. The, like, what, did, I mean, they, I did they just like do like find replace and like? Is it just every time they just took the Dickens book and every time Bob Cratchit is described as a man, they describe him as a frog instead? A frog. I mean, probably because yeah, all the, all the names are the same. Right. They don't like call people Kermit or Miss Piggy. Um, it's Emily and and Bob Cratchit. So, but uh, but no, I haven't actually read the novel. But I do think that those lines you're like coming from Dickens' mouth or Gonzo's mouth. It makes a lot of sense why it works there in a way that. Um, shoehorned into dialogue just never really works we actually strangely enough we talked a lot about that when we were doing adaptations of lovecraft stories uh the german version of the color from out of space uh being a really good example of it in that like there's all these great descriptions but of but there's like no dialogue in the stories so all these all these little moments or descriptions are like force fed into characters mouth in a way that seems very odd and doesn't work at all. Um, and I can see that being the case for those other adaptations here too. Yeah, actually the, the Lovecraft call out is pretty, is pretty good because there's a line that uh, Gonzo says in this, uh, <laughs> Gonzo says storytellers are omniscient. They know yeah. everything. And I'm curious. Yeah, it's one of my favorite was, lines. I'm curious if that, like I've watched this movie every Christmas, uh, every Christmas season since I was, I have no no idea four, but uh, whatever it came out on VHS essentially, and uh, I'm curious if that line was my uh my moment of understanding of what storytelling was and why I became obsessed with <laughs> with a lot of storytelling in movies and also why I became obsessed with telling ghost stories also because like that was something that for years my friends and I would do um was tell each other ghost stories no matter how bad they were it was just fun to have let someone just have the have the mic so to speak for five or ten minutes while we like made a fort in their basement or something um and did most of the ghost stories end with you guys liking capitalism a little less <laughs> uh yeah we were maybe i should quit this fucking paper route (laughs) (laughs) most of them were just us us upset that capitalism failed us by uh, ceasing the production of ecto coolers they're Um, paying me to throw ads at people's house (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah to uh jump in there that the the sort of power of a narrator to uh, delve into purple prose and go off on these tirades and such and, and go a little crazy is like it's like half the reason I like reading literature 
And to get to, uh, as, as Ethan says, uncanny, uh, to get to uh, these sort of uncanny uh, places where <laughs> the Muppets are tapping into genuine human emotion sometimes as well, leads to moments where you're like, oh, that dialogue does sound actually really natural spoken out of an alien's weird fucking mouth with <laughs> this, like, I don't know, banana nose. Yeah. Uh, it actually does come off as, like, very dramatic and, like, very powerful. Um in the same way, you know, like Lovecraft or certain other uh, more more um, purple prose uh, folks, uh, it can sound very unnatural unless you have just the right speaker um, that's capable of pulling off that line. Uh, the, the- and who can stop himself from fucking a chicken for one second to, to narrate <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, that was the thing on set is they <laughs> they had to uh, have him fuck a chicken and then walk on set to do his lines and then immediately have a chicken offset between takes. <laughs> I, I am obviously just dying to get into specifics here, and I know that we will save that, but I just want to throw down one more gauntlet, which is that that I, I really do believe that that this has one of the most effective storytelling moves I've ever seen. And one that I have tried to recreate in my own creative works to far diminished effect. And so are you talking about, are you talking about uh, in this movie or in the story? In this movie. No, no. What, okay. what Jerry Jewell and Brian Henson did. So Jerry Jewell and Brian Henson do something that is so effective every time I watch this movie. And I, I would love it if I could ever do something a, a tenth as effective as when Gonzo and Rizzo leave for the ghost of Christmas yet to come because I get a chill thinking about it. They are your security blankets. They are there for all the comedy throughout as Rizzo acknowledges a pretty spooky story. And then just when it gets really intense, your security blanket vanishes and you sort of drop into a whole new layer of kind of intensity and dread. And then when they come back again at the end of that, it is so cathartic and it's, I mean, it is it is hard not to kind of slip into hyperbole for me when talking about this movie, but it is it is just so effective and and so miraculous. And and even aside from like, you know, this is a great Christmas Carol adaptation. This is, you know, I, rewatching it again yesterday for the first time in a few years. This is just a really great movie in a way that you don't often see. And, and they're few and far between. And I'm grateful for this one. Yeah, and really quick before we get into the movie in more detail, there's two things I want to talk about that are very much related to the movie, but are also just related to the story in general. Um, that would apply to most versions that I that I just really want to talk about for a couple minutes. So the first one is is that, and this is something that we talked a lot about last Christmas when we covered It's a Wonderful Life, but it is truly amazing to me that these fucking like anti-capitalist like greed is bad. Being a good person is good, like type tracks, which this very much is, have like both been embraced by the mainstream and also have all of the commentary stripped out from like a general audience's perspective. Like, I feel like this is just the story to a lot of people or the majority of people of like a man learning to be nice in the same way that it's a wonderful life was like about a man learning to love his family. And I feel like that happens so often with these stories that have been, that have been around a long time that like are like a critique about something that people love. Like they want to embrace the stuff they like and take out all the stuff that makes them uncomfortable to the point that the, the like 
the point of the story in some way goes away. This has also been done quite a lot recently with uh, uh, some books called The Gospels of Jesus Christ. <laughs> where, where people have stripped out a lot of the stuff about uh, rich being bad, helping poor, <laughs> and being like, uh, you know what? Uh, we don't like gay people. <laughs> That's what Jesus talked about, and he's God. So you have to listen to us, because God's on our side. But what if we made uh, the eye of the needle just really fucking big? <laughs> big enough for our camel to fit through, so to speak. Well, in terms of kind of what the moral of this story is, I, I was reading yesterday there is a famous Marxist scholar who thought that this was actually um, propaganda to follow Bob Cratchit's lead and just shut up, keep your head down, and maybe eventually your boss will be nice. <laughs> Which is not really my read of it, but is, is definitely an interesting one. It literally takes uh, three ghosts giving someone an impossible situation to turn this guy's asshole life around. This piece of shit. This actual, like, synonym for an asshole, a Scrooge. Yeah, Yeah, such an asshole that that became the name. Like, oh, we don't have to call him an asshole. Let's just call him by his Christian name, Scrooge. And it's funny because – my wife had a very genuine question. She was like, does the term Scrooge originate from this? Or is it like old timey English that they just used as like a pun name for, for uh, Ebenezer Scrooge? And I was like, that's a, I mean, it's a, gen- I know the answer is the answer is it's the Charles Dickens originated the term. Um, uh, I was, on, like, I was hum- just waiting on bated breath on that. Cause I didn't know it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. And then uh, humbug obviously was something that was popularized by the work, but obviously Dickens didn't, come up with it it's an interesting question because the work is so indelibly linked into our our subconscious that uh as as, as a storytelling people there's terminology from it that just entered the entered the um a terminology and iconography from it that's just entered our our sort of um our conversations in the way we view morality in the way we view this particular victorian era and uh, <laughs> and it's just it's kind of um we, we don't get back to the original text as much as maybe we should. So, yeah, and, and, and humbug is also interesting because that was like an actual curse word for its era. But now it's it's considered like a, a cutesy old timey slang. Well, and like, and uh, one of the uh, I've watched a couple of versions of this story in the, the past few days. And in one of them, uh, the called the stingiest man in town, the Rankin Bass production is narrated by a little bug named B.A.H. Humbug. Which is just the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> is that even a, a pun? Like, what is that? It's nothing. It's it's not a very good version. Um, it's it is uh, the only version of the movie that I watched uh, that directly addresses the pressing issue of whether Santa is real. And uh, and <laughs> there are multiple songs promising. Hey, that, as long as there's yes. ghosts, okay. uh, as long as there's ghosts, what if there's also Santa. Yeah, and what about Abominable Snowman, Island Misfit Toys? <laughs> Just throw it all in there. Why not? Hey, uh, any uh, you got any snow misers in there? What about heat misers <laughs> while you're at it? But seriously, like, the, the, was that Rankin and Bass being like, "All right, we got this, we got this Santa doll. Uh, you think we could maybe uh, chew up five minutes with this?" Well, this one is actually this. This is uh, traditional hand drawn animation, and that's. One of the only interesting things oh. about this is it is That's so weird. <laughs> it was a a Japanese co-production that was worked on by a lot of animators that would go on to found Studio Ghibli. 
So, I, I uh, picture I picture the other version where like they just are trying to reuse models. So like when Scrooge goes back to the past, they're like, "You remember when you were mean to that elf that wanted to be a dentist?" <laughs> if anything, it looks a lot more like their Hobbit at times. Like there's Weird. characters that that definitely evoke the Bilbo Baggins of it all. So uh, the second part that I really love about this story in general, and it ties into the first, um, is that Scrooge's reformation. Uh, happens with no chance at personal gain or writing personal past wrongs uh, for some sort of reward. So there's a ton of movies, uh, the Richard Donner Scrooge version, where Bill Murray, you know, uh, left a girl that he loved because he was an asshole rich guy and being an asshole rich guy was more important than the girl he loved. And the the crux of that movie is that at the end, not only does he become generous – still very Bill Murray-ish, but he, uh, you know, he he gets the girl back, the one that got away. And that feels like even movies that aren't adaptations of modern adaptations of A Christmas Carol, that is such a common trope. Like the asshole learns not to be an asshole. And as such, he he uh, reclaims some personal loss. He gets his family back. He gets his kid back. He gets a, something back that becomes uh, makes makes the transformation not necessarily wholly selfless. Like you could make a case that if at the end of Scrooge, if Karen Allen punched Bill Murray, maybe he just goes back to being an asshole. But in the story proper and in this adaptation, I really, really like that there's no chance to reconnect with the girl. There's no chance to write any of these past wrong for him personally in a way that, like, he becomes happier. He is making this decision to reform and to and to try to right past wrongs in the present for other people by being selfless. Like, the only gain that he gets is the realization that instead of bringing misery, he's bringing joy to the world. And I think that's so critical to this story feeling like a true like redemption narrative and and why the ending is so uh of most versions very magical when it's just i'm just gonna do a bunch of good deeds and there is something cathartic about seeing someone bring joy into people's lives like this is obviously part of the fun here is that this is the guy you least expect which is also why he always like he fucks with bob cratchit a little bit like hey it's my last chance to be an asshole i'm gonna i'm gonna be a little bit of an asshole before i let him know everything's cool but um but just that kind of like concept of he's doing it for nothing other than the realization that he he has been a bad person and he should be good is so important because it's not that there's not like good demonstrable reasons to do the right thing and, and that can have a personal benefit for you in your real life. But I think the important point of life and this movie and other things is like regardless of the personal benefit you get from doing the right thing, you should do the right thing. Those two things should not be tied into each other and you should try to make the world a better place and not a worse place even if it doesn't mean some personal win for you and the things that you wanted in well there there is one slight wrinkle to that which is what the particular adaptation chooses to do with fred who is the least interesting character in this story (laughs) scrooge's nephew you know that that is the only i think potential sort of gain if you and and if the particular adapter wants to do it is that he reconnects with his family. Um, this is the, the son of his beloved and, and 
you know, departed sister. And there was a sense he's been keeping the guy at, at arm's length and now is able to be kind of welcomed into a family fold for the first time. And, and I think the better adaptations minimize Fred because it's not very interesting. A Muppet Christmas Carol minimizes him very much. And the, the Albert Finney Scrooge has what I feel is a very unearned sort of cathartic ending where he, I think the last line is, I'm going to have dinner with my family. And it's like, yeah. oh, I didn't realize that was something that I was supposed to want for you. And weirdly, the best <laughs> Fred is from Scrooged. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so I feel like the I kind of disagree with you a little bit just in terms of the way Fred is used in Muppet Christmas Carol, because I think that it adds a little bit of complexity to to the most of these adaptations like they have to be like, all right, we need to teach you that this guy's an asshole in three minutes go. <laughs> um, and so this movie actually takes the time while they're establishing that he's an asshole, that he does have some sort of strange weak spot for this Fred guy that like he can't quite get rid of him the way he has gotten rid of everybody else around him that he's not paying or isn't, you know, going to him for money or like has to go to him. Um and, and the fact that Fred is like seems to voluntarily take time to try and cheer him up, um, I, I feel like adds a little bit of a wrinkle early on, which gives you like a, a more of a nugget of humanity and more of a complexity to the character a little bit early on. But like, that's not a great reason for a character to exist, right? It could have been a moment of weakness with Bob Cratchit, for instance. Uh, it could have been a moment of weakness with any other character, Um uh, but uh, having so I Fred th there for a mo for just for just a moment, and you're like, maybe this guy does it. It does have something in him that's that's a soft point that can be a pressure can be applied to break him. And that's one of my favorite things also about his arc, uh, Scrooge's arc, is that they don't break him by hitting him with terror immediately. They hit him by making him sad and nostalgic for a past that he lost um and because instead he of just cared like, about money more than people yeah and then when he's weak and when he's feeling like uh, yeah i'll do anything just you know just just let the pain go let the pain go when he's at his weakest and most pitiful then they're like all right now we're gonna hit you with the terror and the horror yeah. um and the, the true fantasy of a dark future i also think fred's important and i, I do disagree with ethan and also well, Mayor. I, I need and to I, stick up for fred now because i think i may have phrased myself poorly but aaron go ahead <laughs> I, I was just gonna say that like i think he's important to the story and important to most incarnations including this one even though like i don't really see it i see it as anything else like he could have a friend at work, too, if he wanted to. Like, I don't feel that as much of a personal gain the same way that, like, rekindling a romantic love, because that's what he lost. Like, you don't see much in his past about, like, losing his family, necessarily. But anyways. Uh, but I do think Fred's important also because it's important to show that, like, interactions with him of people that he doesn't have an element of control of in the way, like, a boss does. And again, like, to Peter's point, he has they have to show those interactions very quickly. So it's like, here's how he handles charity people uh, who want something from him. Here's how he handles people that are getting something from his, him, his employees. And here's how he handles, like, family members. Absolutely true. And Fred is essential to the story. Don't get me wrong. What I think an adaptation can fail in doing is trying to make more of Fred than he is. And, and some adaptations really greatly expand the Fred role because they think, well, 
this needs to be the guy that we care about because how could we care about such a jerk as Scrooge? Yeah. And so, no, please, please don't get me wrong on saying, you know, Fred is an extraneous character. He's he is an essential part on the journey of of sort of, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. But I mean, I, I can't be the only one who feels like that scene at Fred's house is <laughs> sort of a low point or, the, you know, that's that's the bathroom break for the story. Uh, he has he has a sm- he basically his wife smiles and that's it. Like it's I actually think like, Tiny oh, Tim's oh. song is the bathroom break, but in um, this version, yeah, I almost Tiny just Tim's did a spit take. Aaron, oh, you're gonna talk yeah. about Paul Williams like that? Come on, I thought better. Paul Williams you. is Paul Williams is great, and most of the songs in here are fantastic. Tiny Tim's song is a little like, oh okay, yeah, it's fair not. enough. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, anyway, you guys, you guys want to talk more about? The Muppet Christmas Carol. More than anything in the world. There's magic in the air this evening, magic in the air. The world is at her best, you know, when people love and care. The promise of excitement is one the night will keep. After all, there's only one more sleep till Christmas. Give us some alternate taglines for Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, yeah. Hey, kids. Uh, you want to watch a Muppet movie about uh, the dangers of uh, uh, hoarding money, treating your workers bad, and dying alone? <laughs> yes. If the answer, if, if it's me as a child, the answer is more than anything on earth. It's the first Muppet movie not for kids. <laughs> oh, sorry. I have to. I have. We have to jump back to the a- absolutely galaxy brain take that this is somehow a pro capitalist story about why you should just suck up uh, all of the punishment that the capitalists give you until one day they decide to have a change of heart. Because of ghosts. Like, even in that argument, the implication is that the only thing that can make your boss be a nice person is a fantastical uh, supernatural elements that don't exist on Earth. God. Uh, that author must have been constantly haunted by ghosts. <laughs> so, like, if it could happen to me, it could happen to anyone. <laughs> that author? Jim Jordan. Uh, <laughs> Peter, why don't you give us, this is probably one of the briefest recaps that we could do. Yeah. So, hey, uh, so. has, have you guys seen A Christmas Carol? It's like that, but there's Muppets. There's a guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, he treats all of his, everybody around him poorly. It's the Christmas season. Uh, and he is. Uh, hey, uh, Peter, sorry to interrupt. How does Scrooge feel about the Christmas season? Uh, he thinks it's a bunch of humbug. He thinks it's a bah humbug. Yeah, Scrooge's immortal catchphrase, bunch of humbug. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, I felt like the perfect setup for a very lame joke You know, he thinks it's a bunch of humbug <laughs> Like a leader, because it's, it's Britain So, a leader of humbug uh, It's about a three stone humbug Which is a lot of humbug to, ha- to have in any one location uh, One stone humbug would be uh, sufficient um, but, uh, you, you know the story, Ebenezer Scrooge is an asshole to everyone, and, uh, he is haunted by ghosts in retaliation for being such an asshole all the time. He's being a genuine Scrooge, uh, literally, and, uh, what would eventually become metaphorically. And uh, historically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. Past shows him his tragic, uh, very depressing uh, upbringing. 
Uh, and also his uh, spark at hope uh, of love in the universe and kind of how he got to be the person that he was he is today. Uh, again, a uh, humongous asshole. Uh, the Ghost of Christmas Present is reflecting on what is kind of going on around with with uh, without him. He's he's uh, sort of a specter around the the world. He he can't or not about around the world around London. And, um, and and really quick when he sees people uh, laughing at him in the present about what a what an asshole he is, he starts to think, oh maybe I'm an asshole. Unlike some people who, uh, well I haven't seen it, apparently become the clown prince of crime. <laughs> When he hears people laughing at him. Also, and just, I, I know I have a tendency to uh, to sidebar too much in these Muppet <laughs> recaps, but uh, when you say he goes around the world, but actually it's just <laughs> London, there there are uh, various adaptations where they do travel much farther, and in a lot of them, they will visit a lighthouse where two lighthouse keepers are drinking and being jolly and sort of wishing each other Merry Christmas. And it's a lot of fun to imagine that that it is a digression into the world of Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. <laughs> Just briefly. <laughs> that's my, that's my like, You thought it was theory. a mermaid, but it's actually Ebenezer Scrooge they were seeing. You know. With a tail. You know what, Wiki? I'm glad you killed that goddamn bird. <laughs> now I get to spend more times with ya. Spoilers for The Lighthouse, he kills a bird. <laughs> Spoilers for Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner yes. as well. <laughs> and just being around birds for too long. <laughs> inevitably, birds, birds inevitably are you're going to murder a bird. <laughs> Birder happens all the time. Um, <clears throat> so oh, That was too good to go past that fast. Birder? <laughs> yeah, thank you. The uh, And then he goes and sees the... He sort of... Uh, be, through these, two, uh, these first two sections, he has a uh, emotional breakdown where he realizes the error of his ways and he's humbled and and uh made into sort of this like broken man by <laughs> by the amount of uh feeling that he's being flooded with after decades uh of just sheer cruelty out in the world and then what really seals the deal is the ghost of christmas future uh, often depicted as death depicted as death in this form as well ghost of christmas future shows him is is dark his dark, dark fate of dying alone and in a darker world um, than he left it. Uh, Tiny Tim is dead. I didn't even talk about Tiny Tim or any of the Cratchits. But uh, there's a yeah, family people, that he ritually, ritually abuses. <laughs> and uh, in different versions of this story, Tiny Tim dies for different reasons because of uh, Scrooge's uh, cruelty. Um, and so he sees a, a vision of the future where Tiny Tim is dead, the, the Cratchit family is, is in mourning, and he says anything to avoid this fate. And he wakes up, uh, a, a reprieve from death, um, for now. I'm, he's old, he's also <laughs> gonna die at some point. Uh, a, a brief reprieve from death. And he feels like he's born again. He, he, uh, he's, he goes around town giving his money freely as in, in acts of charity and goodwill. And he, uh, he makes, he makes up with many of the people that we've seen him be intolerably cruel to uh, over the course of the story. And at the end of the story, he is a changed man um, who presumably will um, be a good landlord. I don't, I don't know. Um, it is a <laughs> fictional story. So at the end, he becomes Hannibal Burris. Um, I do want to make a uh, more recent version where Tiny Tim dies from... Uh, from getting swatted after pissing off the wrong people on Fortnite, but you know, it's important to important to update your stuff. But yes, yeah, so <clears throat> we didn't talk about personal histories with 
this adaptation specifically. Um, how far back does this go for you guys? Uh, Ethan, how, when, when did you see this for the first time? I mean, you know, I, as I mentioned, this was a book that my dad would read to me a lot. Um, cause my dad's a huge Dickens fan and, and wouldn't let me sleep. Yes. <laughs> read the whole book every, every night. Every night is, was misery. No, um, he was a Dickens fan. He turned me into a Dickens fan. And, and so like, for a kid like me, I mean, this was, this was the Avengers. Like this was the, the team up that we've been waiting for. Charles Dickens and the Muppets. I mean, this was <laughs> the event of my childhood. So. You know, I'm, I'm sure I was there opening day. Uh, yeah, I didn't see it till it came out on video, but I was from like I'd seen Mickey's Christmas Carol and had definitely like seen other adaptations. I think I'd already seen Scrooge because my mom was a huge fan of the Albert Finney version. So I actually think like it worked for me as someone who was familiar with the story enough to get how it, the Muppets were being uh, were telling the story while poking fun at aspects of the story like i will say i showed this to my five-year-old and this is by far her like least favorite of all the muppet movies we watch like either she needs to be a little bit older or also have a lot of the comedy parts are derived from knowing the story enough to get why the jokes are funny and without it it's just kind of a like I really do think from her perspective, it's like, a, oh, it's a sad Muppet movie for some reason. So so but but I when I saw it at nine, like I was familiar enough with the story and kind of the idea of uh, like light parroting to uh, to find the movie both wonderful uh, with the ghost and everything else and also uh, very funny. Well, I would I would say, though, it's it's also just it is a deeply sincere telling of the story and. I, yeah. I watched about half of uh, Muppet Treasure Island today, and that is a movie that is constantly, like, making fun of the book and, like, you know, get a load of this bullshit. Can you believe we're doing this? And, like, this never does that. It never really condescends to the story. No, agree. But but all of the jokes are, like, uh, are almost, like, making fun of the margins of the book, right? Like, or little parts of it. It's not – there's not that much funny. Like, one of the funniest things about this movie, while also, like – working really well is Michael Caine's decision to play this completely straight as if it wasn't a Muppet movie. There's a line so, uh, in the making of uh, that is attached to the iTunes extras I watched where they said Michael Caine decided to play it as though the Muppets were the Royal Shakespeare Company, which I adore. I I, I, I mean, I think that really shows off like uh, yeah. why this movie works because so much of it is just relied on Michael Caine taking everything so seriously around him. Uh, that's, that's gotta be fucking difficult when you're watching a man shove a hand into a felt sock. Like, it's magic in the film, but, like, on set it has to be a, a jarring experience watching, like, a table with a bunch of, like, uh, bearded 40-year-old men shoving their hands into socks and making funny noise, making funny voices. Like, the fact that he could take that little sock so seriously is, like, that just speaks to the level of actor that Michael Caine is. Well, and that's why, like, moments where, like, him th- him being, like, Michael Caine-level amazing actor furious and throwing the reef at the little bunny, like, that contrast is funny. Right. Like that he there's a little tiny bunny Muppet who is who gets a reef thrown at him, who is asked to grab the turkey. But like that is very like subtle humor. Like, look at the contrast of these two things. Like it's generally humorous, but that is much different than the typical like 
Muppet level of comedy that is a little more still swinging for adult comedy and for adults to find it funny, but also enough going on that like a five-year-old uh, can find it extremely humorous. And I don't know. I know our kids are close to the same age, Ethan. I'm not sure if your daughter uh, or oldest kids are close to the same age um, has has watched this. But like, Much it's not that she scary. doesn't I like. I did not show it to her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my kid is broken when it comes to horror stuff. So uh, yeah, so she she liked it, but she definitely doesn't think it's funny. <laughs> well, and it, it often isn't super funny. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, it's it's. Not in, as you say, the, the typical Muppet way. Um, can I do my Michael Caine corner for one sec? Is is this the right moment? Yeah, um, do the Caine corner. It's it's time for the corner of Caine. Um, well, A, I may be misremembering this from uh, the, the making of, but I believe they say that it was actually the Muppeteers who were unnerved during the process, not Michael Caine, because they were not used <laughs> to the person they were acting against giving them that much connection. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine you're underneath that you're underneath that like table or the structure or whatever scaffolding they're using for the particular shot, and then all of a sudden like this this fucking Shakespearean actor is screaming at you, but like not not like in a Christian Bale kind of way, <laughs> screaming at you <laughs> for the movie. Well, but it's interesting you say screaming because he does some of that for sure, but this is a role uh, that is is almost always overplayed because Scrooge is a character who is, is very big and sort of broad and like, you know, he's, he is the archetype of the mean old man. I think because the Muppets are there to kind of be stylized and, and sort of carry that, um, sort of carry that weight of stylization, Michael Caine plays this role at about a one degree sort of underplay in a way that no performance that I saw among my 14 uh, that I watched this week even comes close to. He plays this character with a really intense emotional verisimilitude that nobody else does to the point that um, the climax uh, where he is having his his graveside um, sort of moral resurgence or, or whatever is um a very sort of intensely emotionally real moment in a way that it is not in any of the others because michael kane is playing it with as i say he is he is underplaying it he's never reaching for anything it is just a man having the most sort of viscerally real emotional breakdown and where albert finney is dragged to literal hell this is so much more intense and moving just because Michael Caine is is just dialed in. And I had never really appreciated that until yesterday. Yeah, well, he seems to be playing like seething hate for humanity as opposed to angry outbursts. And I think I think that's a really good call out and something I noticed this time, too. Like he does have those moments that are almost played not for comedy, but people react to them with comedy, like throwing the reef or the. How would how would the bookkeepers like it if they found themselves? Oh, that boy! You know, <laughs> yeah. for and so the the rats could do a fun like racist Jamaican accent for a sec. <laughs> um, but like most of it is just him, like almost like barely under his breath, like 
uh, like letting the words escape in that like talking to other beings is like a waste of his time because he's the only one he cares about. And I I really noticed how I, I think dialed back a degree or a few degrees is the, exactly the right way to put it. He is playing it so, um, so small, not just compared to other Scrooges, but like it makes every moment, whether he is angry whether he's hateful or spiteful or whether later on when he's starting to like slowly realize what his decisions have cost him personally and cost the people that exist around him really brings out those moments to to recognize the subtlety of the performance. Well, and he also does one other thing that's really important that a lot of other performers don't do is he plays Scrooge as a guy who likes to have fun. And for him, fun is being a shitty guy. <laughs> Because yeah. that is that is the the thing that, you know, versions that try to, as I say, foreground Fred lose track of is is Scrooge is somebody we like to watch because he's funny and he's got like a little sort of spark of humor to him. And, and Kane plays that in the earliest moments, like he's got a little smile on his face when he's being awful to the rats. And, and he plays uh, the moment of throwing the wreath like a full rageaholic who's getting his fix like this is a guy who is is you know more than happy to find joy in life it just has to come at the expense of other people and that then allows that to kind of you can make the turn into there is room for him to just realign what sort of makes him laugh by the end there's an interesting you you say uh he needs to take his joy in life from taking it from others uh there's an interesting thing about his his home life that I don't want to, I don't want to miss out. And that's that, uh, he, he, he like almost refuses to, they, they use a line where it's basically like, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't even light a candle for himself unless he absolutely has to. Um, and his, and then later when, um, all these, these, uh, sca- these scavengers are stealing stuff from his bedchamber, um, we find out that, uh, everything essentially uh, that he had barring a few small trinkets um is cheap uh yeah. he doesn't he's cheap uh, even on himself so you're right like the only joy he gets it's not like he's he's um uh a Mr. he's not Burns. scrooge mcduck who swims That's, in his money for fun yeah he's not scrooge mcduck uh who i think has a better sense of balance he's taken in <laughs> some some young ingenues <laughs> um, he's trying to preserve history from evil people uh the point is he's not someone like uh, mr burns or whatever who hoards his wealth to himself he seems to live in a somewhat humble uh somewhat humble uh surroundings and he just he hoards the money um in such a way that doesn't even it's not that it, it, the act of per- conducting his business as miserly as possible is the only thing that brings him anything close to joy or maybe that's the only way he knows how to exist it's not that he's hoarding the money to afford a super yacht or something he's just a genuinely miserable person so i in all regards an exercise that i did yesterday was trying to do some sort of alignment charts uh in the <laughs> dnd dnd world to kind of figure out people like to you know compare different real life figures to scrooge including donald trump you know what if he was visited by three ghosts can you imagine and the thing about scrooge is as best i can figure it he is a lawful neutral where he is, he he will adhere to societal norms, even if they bother him. 
you know, if if he has to give by like letting by like letting people off. Yeah, it's like, well, I'm not going to make you come in on Christmas Day. I'm not, you know, evil. I just wish I didn't have to to gain by it as well. You know, exactly. And, And so, you know, the neutrality is what, as you say, keeps him from hoarding his wealth for his own gain. I mean, it's just he believes that society has very specific sort of strictures that keep everything moving. And he is a part of that machine. And he pays his taxes, and that's what he does, and he doesn't have to do anything else, and why is it his problem? And uh, I believe Trump is more of a, a chaotic evil, which you can you can see because of the, the chaos and the evil. Oh, well, yeah, that's a good argument. Um, like, Scrooge would never have a building that says Scrooge on the side. He absolutely wouldn't, yeah. And, and I think, you know, Jeff Bezos is, is maybe the more apt comparison, but even he is, you know, he has a yacht, Scrooge would have no use for a yacht. It would keep him from making more money. Well, and I want to actually, before we skip over, I know we are, we're going to run on short on time very quickly, but I do want to talk, uh, since we might not get back to Marley and Marley or in more, mo- most versions, just the one Marley, just the single order of Marley. Every single other version. in fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's why this version is so good. There's two, there's twice the Marley. What if there's two asshole rich people? Um, <laughs> Uh, weirdly, Marley is played by Goofy in the Disney adaptation. Well, and uh, can, can I get a little bit into my kind of theory here for a second? Because this is this is one of my prongs. Yeah, it it is it is fortuitous that you bring up the Goofy thing there because this is this is where the Muppet version sets itself apart from that Mickey version. Where so what do we know about Goofy? He's Goofy. What does that have to do with Marley? Nothing at all. <laughs> and so it it doesn't work it doesn't scan like there's nothing sort of intuitive to it whereas with the muppets what do you know about statler and waldorf they're shitty old men and what do we know about marley (laughs) a shitty old man and if i could i would love to use this as a moment to transition into something that hit me like a bowling ball yesterday watching this yeah um i was thinking what what part of my body did it hit like a bowling ball and the answer is all of it because not only have I watched a ton of Christmas carols, I've watched a ton of Muppet movies recently. Both, you know, kind of as as part of this whole Muppets Take November and, and you know, introducing my daughter to it. Um, in terms of the sort of Muppets as representational figures, Kermit is a paragon of decency, Miss Piggy is a paragon of vanity. That all allows the Cratchit scene to, to kind of land in a way that um, other versions don't, you know, because we... We don't have any association with Mrs. Cratchit the way that we do with Miss Piggy. But then there is a sort of extra textual level in this movie where not only are we seeing a visit to the Cratchits, but we are seeing we are seeing a vision of the world where Kermit and Miss Piggy figured it out. And we've been following them for 30 years and they, you know, they've had this contentious relationship. Sometimes she, you know, likes him more than than he likes her. That's kind of the whole gimmick. But in this in this version, they really, you know, they've settled down and they have this beautiful, stable relationship. And oh no, their kid is sick. <laughs> and watching it from that perspective, having immersed myself in the Muppets for the past couple of months, the the Cratchit scene just destroyed me because it's like Kermit and Piggy. You deserve better than this. Oh no. <laughs> and, and and it's this like I say, extra textual layer of emotionality that is is not forced, I don't think, 
Um, and it's not something they lean on more than they have to. It's just sort of like a lovely side effect to, you know, this, this whole gimmick that they've tried. And that really blew me away. And, and, you know, Tiny Tim so often is really hard to do on screen because he can't help coming off like just this awful little twerp. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> to say it. Particularly in the Zemeckis version where he's played by Gary Oldman, which is horrifying. <laughs> but in this version where he's Robin and he's Kermit and Piggy's son, like, I don't know, the the Cratchit scene just lands here in a way that it, it doesn't in any other version for me. Uh, I remember thinking the the ending of this movie always makes me cry um the ending of scrooged also sometimes makes me cry it depends depends on on how uh, susceptible i am um for that matter while we're talking about it the end of the simpsons uh christmas episode uh simpsons roasting on an open oh, fire god also makes of me course cry. <laughs> that's i i we i weep every year we watch it yeah. and every year i cry it's just how it works and um, every year he mentions it on the podcast <laughs> and every year i cut it out <laughs> Um, <laughs> and that, that, uh, I'll get to it later, but that sort of, uh, that release of kindness endorphins is, is very important to me. And I want to leave that for my final thoughts, but, uh, I'm not used to sad things making me sad, which is a weird thing. I'm used <laughs> to being numb in the modern yeah. era, but I started, uh, openly crying for a, uh, a dead, uh, cartoon frog or dead felt frog. Um, and how he made the other felt frog and pig, uh, family around him, uh, sad. So, yeah, I mean, most Muppet movies make me cry <laughs> because they're so good at like getting to a part of your humanity or, or like who you want to be as a person. This is different in that, like, it's not the ending makes me cry for those <laughs> reasons, but yeah, like the, the, this, this thing of Robin dying seeing like Kermit and Miss Piggy know the pain of losing a child. I'm kind of laughing while I'm saying it because it's so ridiculous to say out loud, but in the moment it is played so well. And the Muppet performers just do an amazing job. And I think the only thing that really throws me for a loop in that scene is that it posits a world where Kermit and Miss Piggy fuck and have kids, (laughs) but each kid only takes after one of them. Like, there's not a half pig, half frog kid. And I feel like that's odd. I feel like there should be more evidence of the mixed species origins that they come from. So from our 2011 Muppets uh, discussion, we came to the conclusion that um, Muppets uh, are not able to reproduce in the way that people reproduce. Um, It's because it's an affront to God that they exist at all. Um, and that God will not allow them to pass no. that curse on to a new generation. Yeah, first time God saw them, he's like, what's this? Yeah. Like, this. <laughs> this, this will this not do. This is odd. Yeah. Uh, so this is so, this is a really fertile topic of discussion, clearly. I, I would like to <laughs> point something else out. <laughs> Unless you want to talk more about Muppet sex. Oh, no, these were all Muppets that were... These are actually all Muppets that were stolen... Uh, from other families in a sort of criminal <laughs> adoptive system. <laughs> well, so there, there's something about this movie that I have noticed yesterday is it is so much better than it has to be. It has so much more depth of craft and care and emotionality. And it's just like the the giving a shit just really sort of seeps out of this movie. 
Um, I'm creating a pretty complex and gross metaphor, but but roll with me. <laughs> and and I think it's it wasn't it's a worth... metaphor till you called it one. So thank you. Yeah, I know. So and then I will pivot to I think it's it's it is it cannot go unsaid that that this was made two years after Jim Henson died. Yeah, and this was, I was just gonna say yeah, that this was it, it feels like a lot of people realizing that they need to do good. Well, and also like, all right, this is our first project without Jim, and we we got to do right by it. Like from yep. the I had such like a a sort of Pavlovian response to just the French horn music that kicks this off. No Christmas Carol kicks off with the kind of coziness and sort of emotionality that this one does. Every frame of this movie, you know, it just there there is a level of craft and and sort of technical caring to it that it it just feels like I say like like a tribute to this this really special and and unique spirit and that's again just another additional level that that I think puts this over the top. So um, you mentioned French horn, <clears throat> which is a good enough uh, way to translate into one or to transition, not translate. <laughs> I think I heard the word French, and my tired brain was like, so translate because it's a different language. Uh, but to transition into one element, we didn't talk about that we should. Before we get into final thoughts, and that is the music, which is also written by Paul Williams, much like the last Muppet movie Ethan, Peter, and I talked about. Uh, and we've talked a lot about Paul Williams over the last month, deservedly so. I will say really quickly on these songs that I I love the vast majority of them, especially uh, the first three and the last uh, with a thankful heart song quite a bit in the context of the movie and in the canon of Muppet songs. But I will say beyond that, and to, to go back to something that Peter said in the, the Muppet movie episode, like, even though the world of A Christmas Carol exists in kind of a faux Christianity-based, like, Christmas world, where there's afterlives and ghosts and hell, heaven, presumably as well, the Muppets are always and have always been very, like, secular humanist uh, figures, and I really love that, like, the Christmas songs that are expressing about, like, the joy of Christmas in this movie represent so well what it's like to be a, like, secular humanist or whatever at Christmas time. And why, like, there is, like, I love Christmas. I, there, I'm not a religious person in any capacity, but I love Christmas. And this movie's songs are really, like, hit the nail on the head on what I love about Christmas and Christmas movies and and the joy around everything that there is a lot to celebrate. Even if you don't think like, like uh, that your savior was born of just like showing love and joy to the people in your life and embracing that love and joy back from other people around the world and in your neighborhood and in your life and something like that. And that's why that, that Christmas spirit is so palatable, uh, whether you're religious or, or not religious. And I think the songs in this movie reflect that sentiment so well. Well, it's wherever you find love, you feel like Christmas. I mean, there's, there's no sort of better synthesis of that. Truly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I have I have a special attachment to all these songs as well because I grew up with like the soundtrack being played a lot around Christmas time. So like I actually am weirdly enough more familiar with like the soundtrack than I am um the movie. We we would be remiss not to talk a little bit about the the puppetry of the three spirits. Oh, yes. It is it is a just, you know, such a technical feat and B I think so smart that they created these as original 
creations rather than um, using established puppets. They were, I, I learned from the making of featurette that they were going to use Gonzo as the ghost of Christmas yet to come <laughs> in the initial version, which, oh, that would have been a different movie. <laughs> So you're saying that the little child baby Muppet hadn't been in previous Muppet movies before? <laughs> it's not one of the angry babies, which like, I wish it had been now. Like, there was no like, hey, I know what we can do. We got that ghost child from all the previous yes. Muppet movies. Well, but and this this then is my um, my last prong of my theory is that these are these are really the, the two best, I think, iterations of you really can't go wrong with the ghost of Christmas present. He's big, goofy, happy guy, and he dances all around and and this is i think the best version of him it is genuinely yeah. heartbreaking when he goes yeah. but the the first and third spirits are really really hard to get right in two very different ways i think where it, it's very easy to just kind of as we have said so many times make the ghost of christmas yet to come just the grim reaper alternately it is borderline impossible to render the ghost of Christmas past the way Dickens describes it, which is there's language about how um, the ghost of Christmas past is uh, sort of constantly shifting form. And um, at, at one point has like five arms and then has one leg and different. And a blue undulating penis. Yes, sure. <laughs> and, and different, you know, different versions have tried to render this in different ways. And, and, it is just so sort of inherent to prose, this kind of uncanniness. You can't do it in physical form, no matter how many different people have been like, well, it's an old guy who looks like a young woman, or it's a old woman who looks like a young man, or whatever, whatever. But with puppetry, you can create this extremely uncanny effect. Like that, you know, they they submerged a puppet in water and composited it into a scene and that is yeah the the ILM, yeah. ILM put a, literally a muppet in a tank of yeah was it milk uh well they said it was oil at first and then they realized it didn't work and they switched it to water was what i learned in the the making of oh it has a people very were drinking a lot of milk yes <laughs> it's a very uh, a strange ethereal look that, yeah, that i love it not be so accomplished good. it cannot be accomplished with uh uh, just simple puppet puppeteering with uh you know pulling strings and such it's 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 a really creepy effect and again it's my theory of of the Zemeckis version tries to literally accomplish some of what Dickens describes where at one point he, he describes that as Scrooge looks at the spirit um you know it is he he sees elements of every face he's seen before and that's just a psychological concept Zemeckis version tries to make it literal it looks dumb so the the Henson version instead says, well, what is kind of the, like I say, the, the chill up your spine factor of this? And then how can we use puppetry, which is inherently a, a really sort of uncanny art form to sort of use that to our advantage. And then also the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come is by far the scariest version that yeah. in, in any movie, because if you look at the proportions and the physics of that thing, and again, they're drawing something from the Dickens. It, the The book uh, describes the the ghost as seeming like a just a mound of cloth that is indistinguishable from the night. It is he is not described as a robed figure in that traditional way. Yeah, when you realize from a proportion standpoint, he's essentially dwarf. It gets super scary. Yeah, well, he's he is too long in some 
parts. Like yeah. he's, you know, he is very squat, but has very long limbs. And there are many different versions of what it could look like under there. And you don't want to see any of them because they seem scary as hell. And it's, it's again, it's just, you know, I, I think puppetry is such a deeply, it is, it is uncanniness, this thing where it, it doesn't quite look like real life, but it doesn't quite look fake. And it is such a perfect match to this story that, that you kind of can't believe they didn't do it in any form before 1992. Like you mentioned, it takes away so much of the uncanniness of like, how do you do Inhuman Ghosts with CGI, which just never really looks right? And then Robert Zemeckis saw that and goes, I get it. The the CGI ghosts look bad. What if I make everything look bad? <laughs> so the ghosts don't stand out from the rest. And in that way, he was brilliant. But in the rest of it, he was that was a bad idea. But, you know, what do you expect from the director of Flight? Um which is the movie that on this podcast he's most known for, but that is such a dumb joke. That he is most uh, known anyway. for in, in all of society. I mean, Flight, it, it, Flight. it swept Thank you. the Academy Awards. We all still go to FlightCon every year. Yeah, we, we weirdly, most of us take uh, trains or hitchhike <laughs> because we know what, because we saw Flight. <laughs> we know how dangerous Aaron, it is don't, to fly. Nobody has seen Flight. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> The people uh, that we've go to actually Flight only seen Flight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I, I'll, I can start with final thoughts. Uh, just, and I, I don't want to steal Peter's thunder of what he's getting to, but like, but it might be because Peter and I are sometimes aligned, and especially the one thing that we've been very consistent on in like some of our best movies of the year, of like being like Brigsby Bear and like just finding a lot of like joy in our current like ecosystem and world and political landscape in like people doing good things and bringing people joy. The reason why Christmas Carol adaptations as a whole work for me so well is that at the end, after all this misery and sadness and tiny Tim dying, just see like, not just like one nice act that like literally changes people's lives and like how how joyful and how good it is and how it represents like a change on the horizon of a better life but you get to see it like five times in five minutes like and like building first it's like hey the kid i was a dick to earlier go buy a turkey for everyone and then i'm gonna go see my nephew and hey that charity guy i was an asshole to uh here's a bunch of money and the other workers this this is the only context in this movie where giving people baskets of coal is a good thing at Christmas. But here's giant baskets of coal. And then, of course, at the end, which is the uh, Bob Cratchit, um, I'm going to do everything I can for you and your family. Tiny Tim, Tiny Tim lives, blah, blah, blah. And like, man, I need that right now. Like, I always needed it. It wasn't a part of this movie that I never disliked. Like, it was always one of my favorite parts of every adaptation. You just get to see, like, pure humanism pure like joy pure compassion pure charity at the end of this movie but like in 2019 2018 last time i watched this movie like i i need it more than ever like it feels so good to watch that concept of um just people being good to other people the sad part is at the end you realize that this is a fantasy movie because a there's ghosts and b Equally fantastical, uh, rich people never decide they're doing wrong and just start doing good things. It's great that it exists in this in this movie adaptation, and hopefully, or we can aspire to also remember to try to bring and fill people's lives with joy. 
Yeah, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Aaron, I'll, I'll jump off of that and let, he, let Ethan yeah. have the, the last word. Um, so I discussed earlier the concept of the year end being a time for reflection, a time for giving, a time for charity, especially in like a secular humanist concept. Um, and that's also why, you know, like I said, the Simpsons episode where they adopt the dog just chokes me up every single time. Um, he knows I can't cut out final thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the sort of, the sort of, uh, kindness the sort of kindness that these movies end with, these Christmas Carol movies end with, uh, particularly this one and Scrooge, let's let's highlight because those are the ones that are closest to me, uh, tend to have this sort of ecstatic, manic energy in the end where someone has has been uh, has had their eyes open and it seems to have they've, they've broken out of a depressive slump or they've reconnected with their humanity after years of of cruelty and uh and and sort of a disconnect from their fellow man um even if it's a self-imposed disconnect from their fellow man right i I think the world is very often encourages us to be cruel scrooge was rewarded time and time again for his cruelty um in terms of success at business and such and he was only punished by being pushed back by man Um, and as i get older um, and this is something Aaron and I have talked about before, but I, I really want to hit it here again because I like hitting this at the end of the year. Um, sadness doesn't really, sadness and tragedy don't really make me cry as much. Um, that r- rarely, rarely happens. Um, they usually make me kind of numb. Um, it pushes me away from my fellow man. Um, it makes me delve into easy cynicism and irony. Um, that's usually when I'm on Twitter the most. Uh, it's easy to push away from from connecting to people because it's hard work. It's 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 hard work to stay connected to people and you don't have to give these massive charitable donations every time. But you just have to show common kindness. Um, and even that's that's hard sometimes because we're so pushed apart from each other very often. And but the thing that really makes me cry and makes me feel connected to people around me and really makes me feel really makes me feel human is kindness. Just basic kind the kind of kindness that you don't get any reward from. Just it's a kindness in and of itself, a pure kindness. Um, that stuff, that stuff is what makes me cry because I know how easy it is for that's it, it's an act of of effort, uh, even for kind people. Like that's I, I see a lot of things pushing us pushing back, particularly as I get older. To say like that you need to be more cutthroat, you need to be more cynical, you need to be tougher, you need to make more. Um, you need to make harsher choices in how you treat people around you and maybe you'll succeed in this harsh, harsh world. But, and, and there's sort of a, a disparaging qual, a disparaging attitude towards everyday kindness and charity. Like it's a form of naivety and those moments of kindness and deliverance is like, I'm like, I, I, even if it is naive to be kind to your fellow man, it's like, why live if you're not going to have those moments of connection, those moments of just like, Tear, tearful release like like i i know why i'm here um and especially as someone who who's not a religious person like those are the moments when i feel closest to any concept of religion or spirituality is 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 moments of kindness and that's why i have these like wonderful cries around this time of year because that's that's really what and i know this is where this all gets really really pat that's why I love giving gifts to people and taking part in charity events and such, because it's like, it genuinely makes me feel good. I don't know if I believe in actually, I said earlier, kindness without reward. I genuinely don't know if I believe in that because 
I do get something out of it. I feel more connected to people. And uh, the end of a movie like this is just, it's, it's like a, it's a call to action in a sense, even for people who aren't Scrooge level assholes. So yeah, that's, that's why I, I connect with this movie so much. And yes, sometimes it's, it's a little strange that the movie that makes me feel connected to humans is populated by um, felt puppets. Uh, but uh, it, it's true. It, whatever it takes to get me there. So, yeah. Well, I, I think I said my final thoughts at the beginning of the Muppet movie episode, <laughs> which is that this is the best adaptation of probably my favorite story, if at least you, you are basing it on the story that you've had the longest running and most passionate obsession with. Um, so instead, I will use my time to uh, talk about a moment in this movie that I had forgotten about and uh, almost made me do a spit take when I was uh, watching it at my uh, co-working space uh, where I uh, do all of my watching and writing about movies uh, surrounded by people who are all doing their integrated solutions for uh, integrated solutions for integrated solutions or whatever sort of work people do at co-working spaces <laughs> um i'm sitting in the corner drinking coffee and watching the muppet christmas carol and there is a moment in this movie that i had forgotten where uh right after the marley song um there's this sort of moment of dread and intensity and then rizzo offers gonzo a jelly bean and gonzo glares at him and there's a little beat and then Rizzo <laughs> gives Gonzo a little kiss on his nose. And that was just the most sort of charming and beautiful little beat that you're not going to see in any other version of A Christmas Carol. And it's just sort of the magic of this little movie. It's it is it's chaos. This movie is chaos. It is these characters who are sort of chaos incarnate, and that's their whole deal, being used in the spirit of this story that is, I think, more chaotic than a lot of people remember. Is, is something I've discovered by going back to the book. Um, and it's it's sort of one of those things that that could fail so easily in so many different ways and is, and is just held together by sort of the commitment and the, the joy and the love of it by everybody involved. And it has been this sort of weirdly meditative exercise for me, um, as I mentioned to you guys, um, watching the same story there's sort of a Groundhog Day effect to it, to use another Bill Murray classic, um, you know, seeing the same story again and again with just minor variations so I can tune in and out at will. Um, and every time I'm just watching the story of somebody who starts mean and ends up nice, that's very cathartic. Um, and it's it's just been a really lovely way to spend my week. And I, I have you guys to thank for that. And all of it did lead up to me discovering that this movie I thought was really great is actually kind of perfect. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, That's been a joy. Well, thank you for joining us. And that is such a great moment. Um, where at first it feels like a really tender, touching, cute moment. And then you realize that Gonzo fucks chickens. So who knows where his animal hedonism ends and maybe Rizzo. I think we literally started the Muppet Show episode talking about Gonzo fucking chickens and we're ending, ending the It's such a weird, well. like, look. It is a perfect way to end this month. I think we probably talked about it in every episode. A Disney besides Sesame, let's not forget. Besides Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird. Well, in the first Disney movie, he's as we said, he's fucking a harem of chickens. It is the weirdest part about the Muppets that Gonzo fucks chickens, and they're gonna throw it in your face in every. Movie. There's even it. There's there's a brief chicken cameo in this one, and and I believe it's played by a real bird as opposed to the 
the typical puppet, which is an even greater level of sort of so so many layers. Yes. Um, but thank you again so much for joining us, Ethan. You're always a pleasure to have on the show. Well, thank you guys. You for, thank you guys for having me. And I know I, I talked a lot more than usual on this one, and I just have so many thoughts about this movie that obviously, as I say, they they could not be contained and and will be spilling over to brightwalldarkroom.com um, in the the coming months. Yeah, and hopefully, do you know when the article is going to be published? Uh, you know, who knows? Knock on wood, but but probably somewhere uh, in the week, of, like the sixteenth of December. Okay, you can look for it then. So this episode, yeah, so this episode comes out the week of Thanksgiving. So if you're hearing this, it means uh, probably a couple weeks later, you can go to Brightwall Dark Room. We'll definitely have it linked in the show notes as well to Ethan's writing. Uh, but I am anxiously awaiting that as well. It was as much as I like. Uh, joking about it like it was seriously fun to not just do this episode with you ethan but also to uh uh did i talk (laughs) talk via facebook messenger about um all the all the things you were doing and watching and how how much passion you had for this so it was great having you on for this and the beginning episode and hopefully uh it won't be too long until you're back on our show again with both peter and aaron quite literally anytime guys thanks a lot so, yeah, so thank you so much for joining us for Muppets Take November. We have a new month starting next month um, for December. We're taking a very surprising detour to all of us. I, I was going to say we're excited about it. I don't know how excited I am after I watched the first two movies. But it's definitely going to be a different show for a month. Uh, and that, uh, that theme is a very saccharine Christmas where we are watching some movies that are considered the best incarnations of a very discussed topic this time of year, which are made-for-TV original Christmas movies. So we're doing what is kind of considered, and I say considered based on minimal research I did. So if you are debating these choices, it's fine. I have no... But what we picked, what is considered the best Netflix made-for-Netflix Christmas movie, the best uh, Hallmark made-for-Hallmark Christmas movie, and the best Lifetime. Made for Lifetime Christmas movie. Uh, and we are going to watch those and then discuss them. And I don't know, decide which m- company makes the best bad movies over Christmas. Again, it's going to be a weird month. Can you but tell st- me what the Netflix one is? Yeah, so we're starting next week with uh, A Christmas Prince 1 and 2. Mm. Uh, with uh, with uh, the person whose idea it kind of was for this month. Uh, Peter's brother-in-law, Bill, last name unknown. By me, specifically, Peter, if you know his last name, you can say it. Bill Fox. <laughs> Great. Oh, I knew that. I That's, did. He, so this he, is it's a very me. memorable name. It's Not only that, he talks about it quite a bit, so I don't know why I forgot that, but uh, I have been drinking every time I've been around him, so that, I'm sure that, that helps. Uh, then we're doing the best Hallmark movies, quote-unquote, uh, called North Pole. Uh, that is just a Peter and Aaron joint. Uh, and then we are doing uh, The Road to Christmas. With Carrie Nelson, which is the best Lifetime... was well, Actually, no one considers that the best Lifetime movie. It's considered the third best Lifetime movie because the first two are unavailable in any format that I could find. Uh, so yeah. number three, 
Road to Christmas. We originally had a plan to do this entire Christmas bracket, but it was entirely unfeasible, infeasible by how many of the options are just not available to rent or buy anywhere. <laughs> Researching to- uh, movie names made me very much want to watch more of these movies, but then watching A Christmas Prince 1 and 2 made me not want to watch any more of these movies. So, so you're not going to sign up for Lifetime Plus? Oh, I have to, at least a trial to watch The Road to Christmas. I don't want, <laughs> or else I have to buy a DVD. Just watch The uh, Road instead, and I'm sure you can just sort of fudge it. Or The Road to, <laughs> Road to Perdition. Yeah. And then for, so because there's only three major networks that are making these Christmas movies, and also we wanted to do something different, which is to, act, we have two major demons on this show. Both will be exercised in the next six months that we talk about quite a bit in various rants and thoughts, and you've never heard any of them because we keep deleting the 20 minutes of off-topic conversation out of episodes. But this month, next month, and next year, we're going to get those two things out. I'll save the second one to be a secret, but the first one is Full House. And so we decided to do a very special, we love to watch, Full House Christmas the fullest house and we are watching the three full house uh, christmas themed episodes and the one fuller house christmas themed episodes and we're going to talk about that i guess we and need to get all, this out of our system we talk we got about it full house way too much all the show. time all the time you've never heard it because we keep cutting it out because it's off topic it alienates our guests uh but uh but we need to finally get out our full house and i was literally shocked that eight seasons of full house Four seasons of Fuller House, total of four Christmas episodes. That was literally shocking to me, but also nice because we basically have to watch about like a hundred minutes of Full House content. I don't know why every every season of every '90s sitcom did not have a Christmas episode for the sim- simple thought- reason: one, we need to get home to mom for Christmas, or two, yeah. a Christmas Carol Christmas. Why? Yeah. Do- like it's the easiest concept, like a writer's room pitch, like the easiest concept in the world. Insane, but that's what we're doing. It's a very saccharine Christmas, um, and then we're taking a hard right turn in January. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Ethan, thanks again for joining us. As as the Muppets would say to each other, please pull Gonzo off that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Right. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Nephew and niece to me. Will bring love, hope, and peace to me. Love, hope, and peace to me. Yes, and every night will end. And every day will start with a grateful prayer and a thankful heart. With an open smile and with open doors, I will bid you welcome what is mine, it's yours. With a glass raised to toast your health. With a glass raised to toast your health. And a promise to share the wealth. Promise to share the wealth. I will sail a friendly course, file a friendly charm. On a sea of love and a thankful heart Life is like a journey Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. 
If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>